Um, but we're kicking off a brand new series this morning, um, and and uh, we do some version of this series every year. Uh, we used to do it in January because, um, number one, it kind of kicked off a new calendar year, uh, but also because we started meeting in my house uh, to kind of plan for this church in January, and it served as, as a bit of a birthday every year, um, or maybe an anniversary, um, if you will. And so it seems fitting every year to kind of stop and, and refocus our vision um, as a church each year. Um, and it also turned out that uh, after we purchased this building, uh, that it was January before we were ready to start actually kind of making plans and raise money for the rehab on the building. And so, uh, uh, so we paused together as a church uh, in January again to talk about our new space and talk about why we do what we do. Um, so January's always worked. And then a couple of years ago, um, we were kind of celebrating or at least recognizing the anniversary of actually moving into this building, which happened around September. And we were kind of cranking up and kicking off our new ministries for the year. And it just seemed like this was a better time of year to pause and talk about um, who we are, what it means to be Open Table Community Church. Um, so every year we do this. We take about four weeks to focus on our identity as a church family um, and actually think about um, who we are. I think it's really important um, that we do this. And this morning we're actually going to talk about why. Um, so if you've been here for any time at all, you know that um, uh, you probably figured out that I generally open my sermons with kind of a fun personal story. Um, these are actually, there's several reasons for that. Um, and so it's one of the things we generally do in this series is kind of like take the curtain down and talk about why we do what we do and some of the motivation behind some of the things. I thought I'd share why I do that. Um, first, public speaking is scary and really stressful. Um, uh, I'm actually um, a fairly insecure person, and even though I've kind of invested a lot of time into into Bible study and theological studies, and I've read uh, quite a lot to build my biblical knowledge base, um, uh, I, getting up and sharing what I believe in front of people is terrifying. And so, poor Esther has to listen to me every week, like lament um, about my nerves uh, for what God has given me to share that week. And usually about James 3.1. Um, James 3.1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should seek to be teachers in the church. Um, for we who teach are judged more strictly. <laughs> I do not take that lightly. Um, if you ever watch my face when we're doing, when we're blessing the kids, at the end of every blessing there's something, you know, for the adults. Uh, about half of our blessings have some version of as your servant fearlessly declares the mysteries of the gospel. That is so not me. Um, you'll usually see me wince when I hear that word fearlessly. Um, I wish that was me. I wish I was fearless. But believe me, anything I do up here, I do very fearfully. Um, I'm terrified of, of that extra judgment. But um, So the first reason that I open up with something light and easy and fun uh, is because it allows me to get warmed up a little. <laughs> it, uh, to, to find my groove and get some momentum going before I start talking about the heavy stuff um, that puts me in line for, for more strict judgment. Second reason is warm you guys up. Uh, as you know, um, we're going to be here for a minute, usually. Um, we're going to be here for a while on Sunday mornings, and it just seems like um, if I can get everybody laughing a little bit, uh, at least smiling or shaking your head at my shenanigans, it makes the time go a little faster. Uh, we all kind of get warmed up together. Um, but the real reason... Um, I like to open with stories is because I believe in the power of stories. Um, I don't know exactly why, but storytelling is a major part of our biblical worldview. Um, And we're going to try and uncover that a little bit this morning. 
We've talked through this several times in here, but, uh, but does everybody remember the very first time the Bible talks about itself? Ever? The very first time the Bible directly talks about the Bible. It actually happens in Exodus 17, where the Israelites had just won a huge battle with God's help. Many of us remember this at the time. Um, God's uh, people uh, would defeat their enemy as long as Moses kept his hands lifted in the air. Um, but when Moses would get, would get tired and drop his hands, the enemy would begin to win. So Moses fought to keep his hands up so that the Israelites could be victorious. And when he got too tired to hold his hands up, his buddies would hold his hands up so the Israelites could win. And boy, does that story preach. I mean, if we believe that passage that our enemy is defeated when, when we have our hands lifted high, how many of us would walk into this room on Sunday mornings ready to worship with our hands in the air? Uh, if we truly believed this story. Or to make it even more mosaic, what if your kids could only win their battles when your hands were in the air? If you can't say amen, at least say ouch. Um, I'm going to stop there before I get up like too much of a head of steam because that's not actually what we're talking about today. But I will say this, we're planning on having a worship night um, here pretty soon. And if you're battling or the people you love are battling, you need to have your butt in here with your hands in the air. Um, Fighting the way Moses did. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. We're not going there. Um, but after this crazy epic battle um, that was kind of this weird blend of blood and guts and sword and shields, but also this crazy spiritual battle that was fought with prayer and worship, um, much like our own lives, except we're not going to go there. I already said we're not going to go there. Okay. After this um, <laughs> strange and awesome battle, God tells Moses to do something that according to Scripture, he'd never asked him to do before. He says this, After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder. And read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And it's really cool that Moses obeyed God's command and wrote that story down. And much later, we named it Exodus 17. And, and so this is the Bible telling us about how the Bible started. The Bible started with, with God telling Moses to tell a story. Make sure everyone gets to hear this story. Tell it over and over and over again. Write it down as a permanent reminder of what God has done. And we're still reading that story 3,500 years later. But the very first time the Bible talks about the Bible, it's nothing theological. It's nothing deep and doctrinal. It's a story. God has done something special today, and you should tell that story. God came through, and you should tell that story. God showed up and did His job, and you should tell that story. About 43% of the Bible is written in what we call narrative form, storytelling. Around a third of it is poetry. And only a little less than a quarter of the Bible is written in what we call prose discourse which is a theological word for, for when you communicate a truth, a direct truth from one person to another. Only about a quarter of our Bible is, is communicating theology from the writer to the reader. The majority of it is storytelling and poetry and, and, and art. So the majority of our Bible was written to tell people, including future generations, what God was doing and how his people were reacting to that. Telling the God story. So the Bible puts a lot of weight and emphasis on story. I really think part of the problem that Jesus had with the Israelites in his day 
uh, as they were navigating Scripture, was that they had boiled the whole story down and all the living and acting and reacting and, and the life of all of these followers of God, all these real people living with a real God, all the narrative had gotten shrunk down to a theological debate and a bunch of do's and don'ts. So every time someone came to Jesus with one of these discussions, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Hey, these, this happened. What do you, what's the most important? Jesus would say, once upon a time, there was a man with two sons. Once upon a time, there was a ruler going on a journey. Once upon a time, there was a man putting on a wedding feast. Once upon a time, there was a lady who lost a coin. Jesus put all of that discourse and doctrine and debate and he put them into stories where they belonged. I don't think anyone really liked it. In Matthew 13, even his own disciples came to him and asked, why do you keep using parables? Talk straight for crying out loud. I think this is something that we should consider because most of us in church today speak definitively about things that Jesus only spoke to in metaphor and narrative. The kingdom is like a pearl, except it's also like a tree, and it's kind of like wineskins, and it's kind of like fishing nets. It's also kind of like a little seed. And then today when someone asks us questions, we give hard answers. This is what it is. And Jesus said, no, this is what it's like. And with a handful of truths, I think we should say this is what it is. We talked about them in our Creed series earlier this year. There are a, a, a small list of things that are non-negotiable. But so much of what we do in the kingdom can only happen in narrative storytelling form. Only a story truly communicates what life with God is actually like. And I also think there's something really, really powerful about owning this truth. There's this scene in the book of Revelation and theologians fight over when it takes place. Some say it happened in the past. Some say it happens in the future. Some say it's something that is constantly happening. But that's not what we're concerned about this morning. Whether it's past, present, or future, this is a crazy powerful reality. It says the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, we know who we're talking about, right? John made that pretty clear. Um, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren and our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So as the dragon, the ancient snake, the devil, the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ, as Satan attacks, two things defeat him. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf, giving himself for us, and paying the price for every single sin we have committed or will commit, that blood is absolutely essential to defeat the enemy. For without it, Satan is definitely more powerful than you. Because his number one weapon is accusation. And as long as you are carrying your own sin, there is more than enough for him to accuse you of. So yes, we need the blood of the Lamb to defeat the evil one, but there's more. He says we also defeat him with our story. 
with our story. The blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, your story. I can't tell you how huge this is because it doesn't say the blood of the Lamb and good theology. You don't have to have Scripture, but it doesn't say the blood of the Lamb and a whole bunch of memorized Scripture. You don't have to grow up in Awanus to overcome the evil one. It does not say the blood of the Lamb in a seminary degree. It doesn't say the blood of the Lamb and, 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 and a blameless life. The most powerful thing you have in sharing the Gospel and, and advancing the Kingdom of God against Satan is to know that Jesus died for the lost and He saved you and changed your life and you can share that story. If you can tell someone that Jesus died for them and you can tell them what He has done in your life, you can share the Gospel and defeat Satan. Your story is powerful. Now, I'm not saying that good theology, holy living, Bible memorization are bad things. Those are great things. I'm not talking bad about those at all. Maybe they're even desperately needed things. But I am saying that God told Moses, tell the story. Jesus came telling stories, and John says in Revelation, Satan is defeated by telling your story. There's simply no way to overstate the power of storytelling in the kingdom. So when I tell stories in my sermons, it's, it's mostly to make this sermon flow a little better, but, but please don't think for a minute that that's all it is. Story is powerful. And I'd be remiss uh, in this year of core strength where we're focusing 100%, uh, I'd be remiss to focus 100% on creeds and covenants and Paul's clearest discourse of the gospel. And those things are super important to core strength. Because they explain the need, the promise, the arrival, and the effect of the blood of the Lamb. But just as essential to good core strength is story. Both God's story and your own story. And for this morning, the story of our church. Which, believe it or not, starts 31 years ago. Before Esther and I got married, I I knew that I wanted to plant a church. I was mostly set on... Uh, planning a church in Florida, mostly because my wife-to-be had lied to me about it being beautiful there. Um, it was years before I actually visited Florida and found out it's like living in a human armpit. Um, so, so I was terribly misled. But the desire to plant a church and pastor a church that was different um, was already birthed in me a long time ago. Esther and I dated in the context of a really close and powerful small group, and and we were also faithful to a church, and always tried to figure. And those two worlds didn't weren't really together, and we always wanted to figure out a way to marry those worlds more. The closeness and intimacy and relationship of a small group with the structure and reliability and rhythm of a church. And I had zero plan for how to do that, but I knew it was in my heart. So I did what um, I would recommend every young church planter do. Um, I got married with no job and immediately started having a million kids. That's the, that's the plan. That's the, um, actually, I lost my job the week of the wedding. I didn't get married with no job, but I did. Um, but we, got, we actually enrolled in Bible college, started uh, uh, into life, and, and fully believed that when God was ready um, for us to plant a church, the way would be open. And then within about 10 minutes of graduating Bible college, I changed my mind. I wanted it now. I was ready. And, uh, and, and, uh, so I, I launched out ready to plant a church 
and uh, and that was not an option. Esther wasn't ready. We weren't ready. No, nothing was ready. Um, and so uh, so instead, we helped someone else plant a church. Um, we helped plant uh, a church for someone else. And, and while at that church, we got our first taste of real ministry. Between Esther and I, we were part of pretty much every single ministry in the church. Um, and not only um, did I figure out that I absolutely loved ministry, but Esther found out that she could easily lose her husband to the mistress of ministry. Um, I, I was an absolute workaholic for ministry, um, which scared Esther to death, especially since this was all volunteer work. Um, while at church... We, I actually helped plan another church Sunday evenings um, in Midtown, and uh, we figured out that we loved children's ministry in the midst of all this, and uh, and we we met a family um, in the midst of all this that would eventually bring us to Gardner. Um, but concerning church planning, um, the next stepping stone actually happened at the end of our time there at, at Great Plains. That was the name of the church we helped plant, um, and we because we led a small group, and and our group. Um, we decided to do the book Experiencing God. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. Um, Henry Blackaby. Um, and it completely rocked my world. Uh, Blackaby, who authored the book, um, said that he promised God at some point in his life that as long as God would take care of his family, he would never say no to a Bible study or a church plant. Um, and, uh, and so he's just got story after story of, of all this stuff that he's done. And it spoke straight to my heart. I was, I was in. And it was one of those studies where, where you learn something and then you dig in and you have to journal a little bit and answer some questions. And, and we took it really seriously. We did it every single night. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so we, I felt like through this study, God was clearly calling us to plant a church. And the crazy part was I could not see how anyone, anyone could do that study and not want to plant a church. Like it felt like the most natural thing to get from this study. How could you not? I was so stoked because I didn't choose this study for this person, but I knew Esther was doing the study and this is going to break her down. Like she's going to, how could she not want to plant a church after, after doing this study? And so I was thrilled um, that she was doing the study and because this dude was way more eloquent about church planting than I could ever be and, uh, and the need to plant churches. And so uh, I would just let him talk to my wife. I wouldn't even have to do it. I would just let him do it, and I would, I'd be there to just say, okay. So you can imagine my shock when every week as we would study another chapter, she was not feeling the least bit convicted to plant a church. And uh, I was flabbergasted, and I tease her about it all the time, but I thought it would be fun to walk through just one of the weeks, one week of the devotions that we did. So day one, um, I wrote, and I put this up so you can honestly believe that I wrote it. Don't make fun of my handwriting. Um, my handwriting is like a seventh grader still. Um, question, what, does God, what did God say to you through the two verses above? My answer, I feel God is calling me to start a church. I hope to fulfill this unity. I think that had to do with the verses up there. But God must teach me and prepare me as well as do the work. It's good. I, got, I feel the call. Day two. Uh, question, reword the statement or scripture into a prayer of response to God. My answer. Dear God, I'm scared and excited about what you put in my heart. I want to glorify you. I want to honor your word and your will. I want you. If what you put in my heart won't do that, then I don't want it. Still optimistic. Day three. Um, Question. Reword the statement of Scripture into a prayer response to God. Answer. God, I feel like you've given me an assignment. I do feel like I'm called, but... And I have this big long... I didn't put it up there, but this big long, like, 
And most of it was the stuff that was bugging Esther about the idea of planting a church. God, you have to do this. You have to answer this question. You have to do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I wrote this long paragraph about the things that were making Esther nervous, which leads to day four. Um, uh, where my prayer was, Dear God, help me discern your will. I am so discouraged. I want to do your will, but I'm not seeing you speak to anyone else. And in parentheses, I put Esther, like God wouldn't know who I was talking to. In case you didn't know who I was talking about, let me write that down for you. Um, I need your confirmation. Um, so you can see the, the toll that the week was taking on me. And you can imagine the kind of conversations we were having throughout the week and how those were going for me. Um, so on day five, I wrote, uh, question, what's the most meaningful statement of Scripture, uh, statement or Scripture you read today? My answer, God needs to speak to Esther. <laughs> uh, but in the prayer response, I wrote something that I, that I think would prove powerful years later in our lives. I wrote, God, she is part of my body. If you are moving me, she should know it. I don't want to move without unity. If her and I are not one, there's no hope for unity with more. And, uh, and so long story short, though this study kind of deeply confirmed the call that I felt God had placed on my heart, we would not be planting a church at this time. Um, but through this story, we did feel called to be more deeply immersed in ministry. Um, so we essentially helped plant again um, with one of the associate pastors that we met at Great Plains, um, who was taking over a dying church in Gardner where there was like 15 people left in the church and a bunch of those left because they didn't like him. Um, uh, Esther and I settled in to start a kids' ministry from scratch. And we threw ourselves headlong into being children's pastors. Maybe a year or two into that process, um, we merged with another church in Gardner and the real kind of growth um, began. And of course, while running our kids' ministry, they grew from about six kids when we started to like 250 um, when we left. Uh, we did about 10 million other things at the church, and I taught in a Bible college for a couple years. Um, and, of course, all this was on a volunteer basis, so I was still working full-time, and, and basically my marriage fell apart. Um, so Esther and I started down the long, difficult road of figuring out how to rebuild our marriage the right way. Um, and through that process, God birthed in us a love for authenticity and kind of deep, genuine relationship in God's kingdom. Honestly, many of the values that we tried to build, uh, later build into OTCC. And, and to make a long story short, we grew in a very different direction um, from the church that we were like 100% fully committed to. Um, pretty much our entire world, all of our friends, all of our free time, all of everything was tied up in this church that we'd been at for nine years and we no longer fit. Um, and one night while uh, just setting some goals for our family, trying to do some reverse engineering of our life, Esther asked me, if you could choose any path in the world, um, where would you be in 10 years? If, if the road to get there didn't matter, if you were just dreaming, um, where would you be in 10 years? Without hesitation, I said, I'd be the pastor of a church and I'd be writing. I'd be using my writing skills. Um, she asked me if I thought staying at the church we were at um, in our current ministry would get, would get us there in 10 years. I said, not a chance. She said that we need to step down. Um, and it was an incredibly difficult time. And, and when we stepped down from ministry, it became clear that we weren't going to be able to stay there. And honestly, we were wounded pretty bad on the way out the door, especially Esther. Um, and we talked very seriously about planning a church at that time. Um, in fact, we had a small team of people ready to plant um, and we quickly realized uh, that we were planting out of our pain. 
Um, and, and you can't, um, rather than planting out of vision, I don't know if you can feel the difference there. Um, but God spoke to me very clearly that we needed to heal um, if we were going to plant a healthy church. Um, we, we couldn't plant out of pain, pain and woundedness and plant something healthy. So we were going to need to heal first. And so we put the dream, I put the dream, back on the shelf. And I make that sound casual, but it was, it was really painful. Um, but the worst part of that season is that we had two really strong convictions that we didn't want to compromise. We believed in the church, capital C, and we didn't want to ever do anything to hurt it. And we believed in honest authenticity. Um, and so we didn't want to do anything that could potentially cause division or, or hurt the church. And we also didn't want to lie and go, everything was great. We're doing super. It's just God's will right now. Like, that's not what we were feeling in our guts, and we didn't want to lie about it. Um, so we didn't know how to be honest and honor the church at the same time, so we just hid from everybody. Uh, we didn't take calls. We didn't talk to anybody about anything. And, uh, and it was really lonely. And so um, Doug Evans, who I was doing a lot of work with at the time, recognizing our loneliness, I think, invited us to his small group which was made up primarily of a bunch of people that went to that church that we had just left. Um, but they also, most of them had come from that church we merged with um, way back at the beginning of, of planting that church. And for some reason, Esther and I showed up to that small group. Um, and it was an amazing group full of real and authentic people. And we studied scripture and we dove deeply into each other's lives. And mostly God was just present in a special way in that group. Um, in fact, Maybe the most surreal night uh, in me and Esther's lives was in that group one night where there was a bunch of crazy stuff going on at the church and some kind of bad decisions being made. And and, uh, and so everybody in the group was kind of doing what you do in small group. They were processing some of that. Like, why is this person in this position? Why is this happening? And that doesn't seem to make any sense. And uh, and everybody's kind of complaining. And Esther and I are sitting there like... And by the end of the evening, we were like defending... Um, the way some of these decisions are being made, and yeah, you got to understand in ministry it's hard and blah blah. I like it was the most surreal thing in the world um, for us, but actually it proved to be like super healing um, for us to do that in a weird way. But over the years, one by one, most of the people in that group left that church and got busy, and the group eventually kind of faded away. But the relationships were still super strong. Um, and that's when I settled into a church that was easy. Uh, we. Uh, we helped a little, but not much. Um, all I did was serve in the homeless ministry and the kids' ministry and the youth ministry, and I wrote the fifth and sixth grade curriculum. But mostly we just went to church and acted normal. Um, and we did that for about five years. And during that time, Doug and I had had countless talks about the way church could be. Um, why couldn't it be full of normal people who just honor God and, and, uh, and revere his real presence without all the theater um, why couldn't you just teach scripture without all the self-help stuff? Um, what if what if you didn't pressure people, but instead you just let the word of God and the Holy Spirit transform them? Um, basically, why couldn't you just do church that was more like the old small group? Like we probably said those exact words a hundred times. Why can't church just be like the old small group? Um, and honestly, it was all just a rambling of a couple guys who really love Jesus, um, but tended to get frustrated with the churchiness. Of church, nothing real, um, until about seven years ago, when Doug came to me and, and asked what I thought about starting a church in this area. And without hesitation, I said no. Um, I, I wanted to plant a church when I was 20, and it hurt when it didn't happen. I wanted to plant a church in my late 20s, and it broke my heart when it didn't happen. I wanted to plant a church 14 or so years ago, 
And something in me broke when I had to put that back on the shelf. And I had finally lulled that dream to sleep. And I didn't think I could handle the pain of waking it up again if it didn't happen. So I said no. I committed to help finding a pastor and casually told Esther um, that Doug had mentioned planting a church. But don't worry, I said no. And, uh, and we were flipping houses at the time, so we had lunch with our realtors. And the wife of the realtor couple we were using came to the table. She was looking stressed out and hurting, and I'd, I'd asked if everything was okay. And she started sharing some of her issues. Um, and I, like, went into pastor mode. I, I ministered to her, talked for, like, 45 minutes straight, if you can imagine that. Um, and uh, while I was rambling, I could see Esther wiping tears away, which normally means I said something stupid. Um, so I just kind of put it on the back burner. I'll apologize later. Um, because that's usually why she cries, because I said something stupid. And so uh, so we get in the car to go home, and I was like, hey, what did I say? I'm sorry for whatever it was. And and uh, she took a minute to compose herself, and she said, I think it's time to plant the church. She told me that I was drying up and dying. And she hadn't realized it until she saw me talking to that realtor. Um. I have no idea what this is about. Um, she told me that she missed that, Chris. Um, and whatever the risk, we, need, we needed to be where I was using those gifts um, because that's what brought me the most alive. So I called Doug and I said I was in. And, uh, and we called a bunch of people from the old small group. Most of them said no at first. Dale, and Dale goes, nope, been there, done that. Took a minute to talk him into it. Huh? Yeah, it did take, it took, it, yeah. A few other families jumped in and we had absolutely nothing we needed to start a church. Um, we looked for space in Edgerton. There was nothing. The school was really expensive and you got like nothing for it. Um, there were no spaces at all anywhere. And so while talking to a friend one day, um, he, he mentioned how another church um, that we both knew pretty well had started um, using a, another church's building. Um, and so I, that gave me an idea. And so I called the Methodist Church in Edgerton. I asked if they had any interest in uh, allowing us to rent their building on Sunday evenings. And the pastor on the phone was like, oh, boy, these people don't do change well. Like uh, I took down a cork board once that they used to send notes on, and you just thought I became a Buddhist. Like they were so mad. Um, uh, so it didn't look good, uh, but he agreed to bring it up to their committee, and, and, uh, and they asked to meet with me. And so I went one Sunday and shared my heart, told some jokes, told some stories. Um, got to, they got to know me a little bit. And later that afternoon, the pastor called and said that they had voted unanimously to allow us to use their space. And that that was the first unanimous vote they had in their church's long history. Um, they had never voted unanimously about anything. Um, but they voted unanimously to let us use their building. And suddenly we were like underway. It just happened like it went from nothing, nothing, nothing to I guess we're meeting next Sunday. Like um, out of nowhere. We're doing church on Sunday nights. We're eating food together afterwards. It was really like having a church that, that was similar to our old small group. Um, we dove headfirst into God's word. And we loved each other well. Um, and we were casual but reverent um, in God's presence. It was beautiful. It was, it was what we dreamed about. And one year into that church plant, um, through a really weird chain, chain of events that is honestly, I believe, is miraculous, but I don't have time to fully unpack it this morning. 
Um, Esther bumped into this building, uh, which was for sale. None of us knew it was here. She found it in the weirdest possible way. Um, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I want to tell the story, but I'm not going to do it. Um, her sister's a realtor. And so we had her look into it, and there was actually an above-asking offer on the property at the time. But the previous church didn't want to take it because they really wanted it to go to a church. And the above-asking um, offer wasn't from a church, which basically meant that, that there was zero risk to us. Um, if, if, uh, if we bought it and God wanted us here, we'd have it. And if he didn't, we'd sell it to somebody who wanted to pay more for it. Like it was, so we, um, so we kind of did the, we had some pretty major reservations at the time. Um, but since there was no real risk, we kind of did the buy first, pray later thing. Um, and, uh, <laughs> or at least that's what we thought we were doing. Um, we called a friend whose whole job is to procure loans for churches. And he literally laughed at us. Like, uh, he said, um, that a one-year-old church with no real money simply could not get a loan. It's not a thing. And, uh, and so we weren't really emotionally attached to the idea yet. So, um, we just kind of took it in stride and decided to pray about it. And, uh, and so we talked to Mid-America Bank here in town because some of us already banked there. And they were like, well, heck yeah, we'll give you a loan. Like, uh, we'll help you out. And, and so we put an offer on the building. And, uh, and they took it, and so we were under contract. And we had it inspected and found out the roof was in really bad shape and no one was going to insure it, and you couldn't get, um, you couldn't get a mortgage if you couldn't insure the roof. And, and, uh, and we didn't have any money, so it's not like we were going to put a new roof on it. And so we told the seller, and he said it was not his problem, and so it looked like the deal was broken, like it looked like it was done. And like I say, we weren't super emotionally attached yet, and so we... Uh, we just assumed this was God closing the door, and, and we didn't fret about it too much. And then three days later, they called us back and said they had uh, talked to their insurance company. Their insurance company was going to put a new roof on it um, because it happened, you know, while they was insured by them. And, and suddenly the deal was back on. And so we're like, oh, my goodness, okay, I guess we're going to do this. And uh, except the lagoon wouldn't pass code. Um, it was grandfathered in on the old church. Now the codes have changed. And if we sold it, we weren't going to uh, be able to use it anymore. And and so uh, I went down and met with the guy, asked if there's anything that could be done. He was like, well, you can do a special thing, but you got to get the permission of your any touching neighbors, which uh, Stan Kime from, you know, Burt's and all that had bought everything around us, so he's our only neighbor. So i got to meet with Stan and see if he'll give us permission to have the lagoon, even though um, it's technically too close to his property. That was the, that was the, the code violation. And... Uh, Come to find out, Stan was trying to get his uh, his site plan for Burt's approved, which he had to get the approval of any touching neighbor. Um, and so he was getting ready to call me anyway. And so we got together and met. Awesome Christian guy. Um, loved the idea that there was a church here. Um, he was willing to sign off on, on whatever needed to be signed off on. In fact, uh, not long in, instead of... Okaying our lagoon, he just hooked us up to, to the sewer that they ran for Burt's and got rid of our lagoon altogether, completely on his dime. He just paid to have that done. So another hurdle cleared. Um, and, uh, and so we remodeled the space, and in September of 2019, we moved in and began our life as a church in Wellsville, Kansas. And we jumped out to a great start. 
Um, we had energy and momentum, and we were adding new families and getting to know them well, spending time with them, which was awesome. And out of nowhere, this kind of strange virus that no one had ever heard of started making the news. I don't know if you guys remember this, um, but... <laughs> Yeah, 2020 hit and the momentum died. Um, honestly, uh, though it was a rough year, um, we learned how to live stream. Um, we fought hard to stay connected. Uh, and through our efforts that year, we started our OFAM, which now includes like four or five truckers who have come to our church and, and loved it. And so they're on every week on the thing and they send me prayer requests and we text back and forth. And, and, uh, and we have some of our people who, um, especially this really faithful group of ladies um, who are in our OFAM who can't really come in person and they're there every week. And so um, so really we added a neat uh, facet to our church that year. Um, and since opening back up, uh, we've actually suffered some really tough and emotional losses here at OTCC over the last couple of years. But through it, uh, we've loved each other well. Um, and honestly, um, it seems we've we've maintained that commitment um, to be a church uh, that loves each other like a small group. Um, and that's what we've, we've managed to do. And I wish we had time to, to walk through all of the amazing um, studies we've done and the way that we've uh, been here to help each other and all the baptisms and baby dedications and the millions of tiny miracles um, that God has done to keep us together. Um, according to all the church planting books, you're a church plant for seven years. And then if you make it seven years, you're officially a church. And that's where we sit now. Um, we, are, uh, we are officially a church, if, if that helps. Um, but actually, in 2014, just some fun statistics, 4,000 churches were started in America. There was 4,000 new church plants in 20, 2014. Um, and 3,700 church, churches closed their doors in 2014. Um, so it was a net gain of 300 churches in 2014. By 2019, and this is the last date, there's hard statistics. Um, before the pandemic, 3,000 churches were planted. So 1,000 less churches. But 4,500 churches closed their doors. So it was a net loss of 1,500 churches. Um, and like I say, though there haven't been any hard studies since then, there's been several um, church groups in Barna who have done uh, some studies since the pandemic uh, over the past three years. And, um, and though the church planting has maintained fairly stable to 2019, about 3,000 per year, the closure rate is now between six and 10,000 churches a year. Um, so we are going backwards. Uh, and I'm not sure... You know, I don't think you have to be here seven years to be considered a church anymore. Like if you hang on for a year, I think you're you're basically there nowadays. But however you look at it, Open Table Community Church is now officially a church. We're no longer a church plant, um, which of course means nothing to us in the way that we do things. We've we've acted like a church um, from day one. Um, but it's fun to recognize how much God um, has done to make this little church happen. Um, and not, uh, if I had three hours, could I explain every little miracle and every time God has shown up, um, and just the weird serendipitous meetings, um, like the way in 2020, I volunteered to help, uh, some, some kids who were doing the new homeschooling thing, like school from home and their parents worked. And so I heard that this lady I didn't even know named Jess had a thing going on 
where kids would come up and do school, and I volunteered to help her, and Jess and I met, and, and now their family, are, uh, we've, our family's fallen in love with their family, and, and, uh, and there's a million of those. I could tell story after story after story of the things God has done in our church. God has been faithful to our little bunch, and I honestly believe that this is um, only the beginning. Uh, so how do we respond to this? That's our story. Obviously, it's a quick, brief version of it. But I do believe telling stories is important. The Bible started because God said, tell the story. Tell people what I've done. Tell people what I just did. Um, King David was anointed king when he was a child. Um, Too young for his dad to even consider him uh, when the prophet rolled into town. But God knew what was in David's heart when he called him. Uh, And David was 30 when he became king. Somewhere between 14 and 22 years before David was anointed and heard the call uh, before God put him on the throne. And I completely understand why now. Um, If I had planted a church when I was 20, it wouldn't have been OTCC. If I would planted a church in my late 20s, it wouldn't have been OTCC. If I would planted a church when I was hurt and angry at another church, I would not have planted OTCC. And I honestly believe with all my heart that what God wanted way back when I was 20 and he first put the call on my heart was he wanted Open Table Community Church. And I wasn't ready. And so God had to do some work on me and I think it was the same with David. And I know that uh, I told probably more of my story than I did Open Table's story, but, but here's why I did that. Fifteen years ago, when Esther asked me what I wanted to be doing in ten years, just a, just a wild dream. Where do you want to be in 10 years? I told her I want to be a pastor of a church and I want to be writing. 10 years later, even though I had given up on that dream and nothing um, went as planned, 10 years later I was a pastor and I write at least 5,000 words a week. <laughs> yeah, often many, many, many more. If you consider writing the children's curriculum and all the stuff. Yeah, I'm writing constantly every week. But we dreamed at a time when there was zero recognizable ways to, to achieve that dream. We just put the dream out there in God's hands and, and let Him be God. And we also believe that, that, that it's now time for us to dream again as a church. Where do we as OTCC want to be in 10 years? We need, and we need to dream bigger than we could possibly pull off. Where do we want to be? And I think you need to dream for your life too. Where do you want to be in 10 years? Dream. I think vision is important, and I hope to share some vision with us over the next three weeks, but I think vision is something you shoot for. It's something you build your plans around. I think dreams are different. Dreams are giving God your heart and your heart's desires. And knowing, knowing that no amount of planning or strategic living could get you there. But you want to be there. And so with all the vulnerability and risk, you, you give that to God. You expose yourself and give that heart to God. So I'm asking you to dream. I'm asking all of us 
to dream. Let's step out of our comfort zones and out of the stuff we know we can accomplish and allow our hearts to venture into the world that only God can do. Let's dream the kind of dreams that give us the kind of testimony that defeats the enemy. That's our homework. Dream.